Chapter Thirteen of Judge Burnham's Daughters. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Judge Burnham's Daughters by Pansy. Chapter Thirteen: The Wisdom of This World. After that, there was a lull in the Burnham household. The various excitements of the days just past seemed to have been somewhat like storms, which left the air clearer. There was about this time some letting up in the pressure of Judge Burnham's business affairs and he was more at home, and exerted himself to be entertaining to both wife and son. As for Ruth, she made many concessions in the way of society life, went with her husband to several state dinners that bored her exceedingly, and even to an elegant breakfast or two, and to one massive and oppressive evening party, where the crowds were too great either for dancing or cards, and she tormented her conscience, when once more at home, by asking it in what respect the evening's entertainments had been lifted higher because of the absence of these amusements, or whether it would not have been better to have danced than to have indulged in some of the chit-chat which she overheard, that old pretense of logic which she was too tired just then to cast aside, paralleled in folly by the statement, it is better to lie than to steal, while one forgets or ignores the fact that if such a statement could be proven, it would prove nothing, unless, indeed, one were driven of necessity to a choice between these two employments. As for the young ladies, their life flowed on in an endless stream of parties, concerts, private theatricals, and what not. Ruth was indebted to them for some letting up of her burdens. It was their choice not to have the elegant entertainment which was being planned until toward the close of the season. Seraph, who was more outspoken on many subjects than her sister, announcing frankly that their object was to see what the Everetts and the Wheelmans were going to do before their turn came, as there were hints in the air of something very unique from those quarters, and they, the Mrs. Burnham, were fully resolved that nothing more brilliant than their own party should be possible that season. So Ruth breathed more freely because of this respite, and kept her plans concerning the gathering to herself, time enough to bring them to the front, to be perhaps sharply combated, when the occasion for action was at hand. Meantime, in her leisure hours, she had some interests more to her mind than society furnished. She was now a member of the Women's Christian Temperance Union, and in their weekly gathering for prayer, she found herself surrounded once more by an atmosphere of earnest Christian life that rested and encouraged her. She had been so long among people who did not know how to pray, that she had almost forgotten how busy some women were in their lord's vineyard. It was inexpressibly comforting to be greeted as one of their number, and to hear her name mentioned gratefully in their prayers. It being utterly foreign to her nature to live ever so slight a deception, she had told her husband at the first opportunity of her joining herself to this organization, but it was at a time when he was undergoing that sharp self-questioning which I told you was not without its good results, and though he winced a little at the information and shrugged his shoulders, and said he had supposed such organizations were not in accordance with her taste, yet on the whole he bore the news very well. There were no crusades in the air at present, and although it was never safe to prophesy what a band of women would do, still, when it came to the point, he felt that he could probably trust his wife's elegant, high-bred nature to do nothing incongruous. That they should meet to pray each week certainly could not harm anybody, and, while it was peculiar, 
of course there was nothing low about it. So, if they enjoyed such occupations, why should they not indulge themselves? Judge Burnham realized that he was just now in high favor with the leading spirits of this union. Their smiles were bright, and their bows most cordial, when they met him on the street. Two or three, indeed, had offered him personal thanks for his intervention in behalf of their homes, and though he had gaily disclaimed any complicity with their schemes, and assured them that he was no longer the owner of the Shenandoah, and therefore not responsible for any of the whims which had brought about the present state of ill-humor on the landlord's part, they accepted this as a graceful joke, and were grateful all the same. As for the little new owner of the Shenandoah, it had not taken him an hour to learn how to instruct his legal adviser in such a thorough manner that the guests of that house had still to look elsewhere for their choice wines. Matters generally were in the condition of lull which I have described, when Judge Burnham came home one evening, later than usual, with the announcement that he must leave, by the morning train, for a long, and, he feared, tedious business trip, that would detain him for perhaps two months. He spent half an hour in trying to convince Ruth that she could accompany him, leaving Erskine in charge of the young ladies, but, finding her steadily determined to do no such thing, he abandoned the idea, and gave himself to the business of making ready. Frequent journeys had been common experiences of his business life, but this was a more extended absence than he had of late been obliged to make, and Ruth, as she turned from the platform where, with Erskine, she had watched until the smoke of his departing train was lost in cloud, felt an unusual sense of loneliness. Life had been pleasanter during these few weeks than in a long time before. It seemed hard that the pleasantness must be so soon broken. Erskine begged to wait and watch the eastbound train, which was even then whistling in the distance, and among the passengers who hurried from it, his mother saw young Hamlin. His California trip was concluded then. Would his intimacy with Minta be renewed, she wondered, or had she already found some greater attraction? And then she told herself resolutely that she need not worry about that. She had done what she could in regard to it. If they chose to be intimate friends now, they need not fear interference from her. In the leisure from wifely duties which now came to her, she found herself turning more and more to the society of women who composed the Christian Temperance Union. The prayer meeting, never very largely attended, was yet the gathering place for the choice spirits of the Union, and Ruth found herself rested and uplifted whenever she came in contact with them. She grew more and more interested in their plans for meeting the enemy, and began to take an earnest part in some of them. She might never have made the proposition, but she warmly seconded it, when one of the ladies said she thought they were strong enough to sustain a gospel temperance meeting on Sunday afternoons. Ruth had very little idea what sort of gatherings these were, but the name sounded inviting. The first meeting was a revelation to her. People came whom she thought never went to meeting, and behaved, some of them, in such a manner as to make her half feel that they would better not be there. Wasn't it a sort of sacrilege to permit such conduct in a religious gathering? However, she rose above this. If they did not know how to behave in a gospel meeting, or, knowing, did not care, surely they needed the enlightening and refining influences of the gospel in an unusual degree. Besides, some of them sat quite still, chewed no tobacco, and listened, 
especially when Mrs. Bacon prayed, as though there was a new power about them whose influence they felt. Ruth grew intensely interested. Meantime, home life went on much as usual. The young ladies were out every evening, and kept closely to their rooms during the day when not riding or paying visits, so that the lady of the house saw very little of them. She was relieved from even the semblance of supervision over their goings and comings by the installment of one who was supposed to have the right to protect them. Mr. Jerome Satterley deserves, possibly, more than a passing introduction, yet I find that I have heretofore not remembered to give him even that. You are to understand, then, that he had, quite recently, come into the family life as Miss Seraph's accepted suitor. Ruth, when informed of it, had realized once more that she certainly was not the mother of these girls. Had she been, with what an utter sinking of heart would she have given one away into the keeping of such a man as Jerome Satterley? As it was, she smiled a faint smile, which had in it the slightest possible curve of the upper lip, as she said to Judge Burnham, people must choose according to their individual tastes, I suppose. Yet Mr. Jerome Satterley, in the eyes of the fastidious fashionable world, was considered unexceptionable. He belonged to one of the old families of the city, had a reasonable fortune in his own right, and an unlimited one which would probably come to him in the future. He was elegant in dress and manner, his mustache was carefully waxed, his shapely hands were cared for tenderly, and he knew how to hold a lady's fan or parasol, or attend her to the piano or the carriage or the refreshment room in the most approved style. In fact, the girls in that stage of development, when such phrases are used, said his manners were perfectly lovely. Yet Mrs. Burnham, unreasonable mortal, regarded him with feelings which were on the very verge of dislike. He had been well enough when she could pass him, along with others of his clique, with a cold bow, or at most a dignified good evening. But to be on such terms that he felt privileged to toy with the spools in her work-basket, and say inane nothings to her while he waited for the young ladies, or to saunter in just before the bell rang and announce that he had come to stay to dinner, and to be obliged to accord to him not only the attention of a polite hostess, but a semblance of the familiarity which his position in the family circle demanded, this was, to the last degree, an annoyance to Mrs. Burnham. It was all the more trying, of course, because Mr. Satterley remained in blissful ignorance of his inability to entertain or interest his prospective mother-in-law. Truth to tell, he believed himself to be irresistible to all ladies, of whatever age and position. He considered himself posted on all subjects, whether in art, literature, or music, and unhesitatingly expressed his opinions with an air that was intended to quench any opposing views from any source whatsoever. Indeed, so entirely satisfied was he with his own wisdom that I do not think he would have hesitated to dispute the most eminent scientist which the world has produced if he ventured a scientific statement not in accordance with Mr. Satterley's preconceived opinion though that opinion might have been adopted because of a chance remark that he had heard someone make at the breakfast-table that morning. In short, Mr. Satterley had an abundance of the conceit which is the visible sign of superficiality. You will, perhaps, be able to imagine how trying, to a woman of Mrs. Burnham's stamp, was anything like familiarity with such a person. She confessed to herself, with cheeks that burned over the thought, 
that such things had power to annoy her. That when he began with an, Oh, my dear Mrs. Burnham, I assure you, you are utterly mistaken, about some matter, trivial in itself, but about which common sense would suppose her to be better posted than he could be, she felt sometimes like throwing her book at him. Especially was it trying to her when he discoursed learnedly on religious topics, making the wildest statements, which were without even the shadow of a solid foundation, and proceeding gravely to argue about them as the accepted standards of the church. Of course he was a young man, holding literal views and advanced ideas, and whatever other term may be coined to disguise indifference or antagonism, and the patronizing way in which he would sometimes say, why, my dear Mrs. Burnham, I assure you, you are too cultivated a woman to hold to any such ignorant absurdities as are involved in that belief, made Ruth resolve more than once that she would make no reply to any of his platitudes on any subject whatever. He is in his very babyhood as regards conversation, she said to herself with curling lip. Of what use to try to talk with such a person? But when a man asks a point-blank question, it is very difficult to make no reply. It was just after one of these emphatic resolves that Ruth sat, silent and annoyed, listening to Mr. Satterley and Minta, while they merrily chatted over a sermon that they had heard preached the night before. Mr. Satterley was waiting to escort Seraph to the theatre, and this was Minta's method of amusing him while he waited. The text of the sermon had been quoted in a tone which would indicate that that, too, was food for amusement. It is appointed unto all men once to die, and after that the judgment. After much merriment at the preacher's expense, Mr. Satterley attacked Ruth's grave and silent protest. My dear Mrs. Burnham, don't you think such themes are entirely obsolete in these days? What themes? Determined not to discuss this question with him, the only way seemed to be to ward off his questions. Why, the themes which have to do with old superstitious ideas of the judgment, and the attempt to frighten people into some sort of mysterious preparation for the same. I confess that I thought all such ideas were obsolete among people of culture. Do you think that death is obsolete, Mr. Satterley? Oh, death, why, dear madame, that is but a debt which is paid to the laws of nature. Then is there any objection to learning how to pay it gracefully? If you are very familiar with deathbeds, you must be aware that there are different ways of meeting this law. By the way, did it ever occur to you that it was a somewhat bewildering law of nature which takes the little child today and the old man of threescore and ten tomorrow, and that it may be a young woman or a young man in his prime the next day? I could understand it better as a law if it were held to times and seasons and meddled only with ripened grain." He seemed puzzled by her reply, quite different from what he expected, and hesitated for a moment, during which Seraph entered in all the dazzle of full dress. "'It is well you are come,' Minta said. "'Mama and Jerome were quarrelling about death and kindred cheerful subjects. There is no telling what the outcome would have been.' "'It is suggestive, to say the least, Seraph, that your dress is very thin and your throat even more exposed than usual.' and the night is cold. If I might be allowed to advise, I should say you ought to wear a warmer garment than that, unless you desire to court the presence of some of death's attendants. Mama, said Minta, with mock seriousness, 
that is almost a pun, and about so solemn a subject as death. I am really shocked. Then Seraph, a warmer dress would be more comfortable, I admit, but the trouble is, it isn't fashionable to wear high-necked garments in full dress. And you know, Mamma, you trained us to a very careful attention to fashion in all its details. We want to do full justice to your early teachings. As Madame Dupont used to say, a young lady who is not au fait in all that regards the demands of fashion is dead already. It was a keen-pointed arrow, and it struck home. Ruth sat and thought about it after she was left alone, as she had sat and thought many a day since her work for these girls began to develop in ways of which she had not dreamed. She had been careful even of the minutest details. She had labored to impress upon the minds of the uncouth, careless girls the importance of tints and shades and widths and shapes and perfect fits. How could she know that they would come to mean so much more to these girls than she had meant, so much more than they had ever meant to her? She recalled the day when Susan, having done for them all she could, the question of boarding school was being discussed, and the claims of Madame Dupont's establishment had been urged by some of Ruth's fashionable friends. Susan had said quietly, I know Madame Dupont's girls. They all learn how to dance and dress. Then she, the one who had stood in the place of mother, had replied, I know her girls have the name of being superficial, but that depends, after all, more on the girls than on their teachers. And really, Susan, it seems absolutely necessary that Seraph and Minta should go to a school where they give special attention to grace of movement and refinement of manner. They are so deficient in these respects. Besides, they teach dancing in all boarding schools, I suppose. Susan had said no more, and after further discussion, the choice was made in favor of Madame Dupont, and to her the girls were sent for two years. And Madame Dupont's teachings had been, a young lady who is not au fait in all that regards the demands of fashion is dead already. Ruth's memories ended, as they nearly always did, with a sigh. End of chapter 13 Recording by Tricia G.